Hello, and welcome back to the world's most inconsistent MMA show. Um, my name is Daniel Martin. I'm here with my co-host, as always, Sriram. And we are joined today with a very special guest, uh, one of who is in relation with one of the most acclaimed and, and heralded camps in MMA history in TriStar. We are very fortunate to present Eamon Zahabi. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm, I'm glad to be on. Happy Absolutely, yeah. Anytime. Um, we are very fortunate. I think it was it Zach Makovsky that kind of yeah. got us in, got us in touch. Okay, because we, we've had Zach you on. You guys in are the amazing. Past. He only tells me great things about you guys. Oh, uh, well, we Talks love Zach. Big. Thank you. Yeah. Um. So this is this is awesome. Like this is so much fun that we get to get to know more people from this gym uh, up in Canada, and we, uh, Eamon has offered to join us on this podcast as we are discussing and analyzing the aftermath of maybe the most depressing event of the year for Sriram. Um, <laughs> if anybody listens to the show and follows us on Twitter, you know that Sriram and I are always at each other's throats uh, when it comes to fighters that we like. But this was this was a bridge too far. Um, I... I actually genuinely felt bad by the end of the night because the four fights that we're talking about today, the four fights that um, we really care about, all were almost drawn up to just end in the like the worst way possible for you. Pretty much. It was it like was... there's. It was like a. It was like a confluence. It was like a concert of uh, of depression it's... and anxiety for <laughs> for you. Uh, as I mean, in retrospect, so? perhaps shouldn't have picked the old guys in, in this one to like, but and that's also why you shouldn't pick the old guys in any sport. So it is, it is what it is. I mean, um, but that is that is what we're going to be talking about. For those who don't know, the the way we're going to run through it today is we're going to talk about the flyweight bout between Alex Perez and Juicier Formiga. Then we're going to jump up to Sean O'Malley versus Eddie Wineland. Aljamain Sterling versus Corey Sanhagen, and then finishing off with Cody Garbrandt knocking out Rafael Asuncao. Um, But to start off with our our flyweights with Perez Formiga, uh, I'm actually going to pitch it over to Eamon. Mr. Zahabi, what were your thoughts going into this fight, and kind of what were you thinking the dynamics were, and how did it play out? Well, you know, I thought Formiga would have shot in a little earlier, like after receiving the first couple of calf kicks, you know, because uh, he threw, I think, two calf kicks in the first minute that landed pretty good. And you could tell it was pretty obvious he kept going for the leg throughout the fight until he stopped him. But I was shocked that he didn't try to shoot on one of the kicks, you know, to use it as a setup. Even though, like, if you're not going to check him, might as well use them to your advantage at some point, you know. So I thought that would have been a little bit different. But I would have to say, like, out of all the fights, these guys had the best guards. Like, the way their hands were positioned and the way they were throwing their punches, it looked very high level. Like, they were the more skilled fights out of the fights I think we were going to discuss. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one thing that a lot of people don't appreciate about Formula striking because, yeah. I mean, it's kind of low volume and weird compared to what people consider as good striking. But this was actually a really, really fun fight for as long as it went. Um, I think going into it, a lot of us expected Formiga, Formiga, excuse me, to to look a lot worse because he's you know kind of getting up there in age at a low division, and the Moreno fight wasn't particularly encouraging, but he looked 
very, very good against an opponent who was, you know, because Alex Perez, a lot of what he does on the feet is just, you know, he's very, very aggressive, as we saw in the Shorty Torres fight. And uh, Formiga has been historically quite good at um, navigating that. We saw that with even the Davis and Figueredo fight. So that was good. It just, I don't, I don't like uh, favoring someone who's getting kind of physically brittle moving forward at this stage. I think Formiga's still one of the more skilled guys. It's just athleticism has always been kind of a liability for him, and it seems to be getting a bit worse. Yeah. So, so like, just to talk about athleticism in general for MMA. Um, when it comes to athleticism, you know, grapplers are not the most athletic. Okay. They don't run particularly fast and they don't jump particularly high compared to regular athletes, okay? So let's say like, uh, I remember years ago, we went to the track. So we go, we train, we, we run, you know, we, we do different track workouts or whatever. And uh, we had a track coach and it was me and a couple of other high-level fighters. And we had two world-class elite grapplers with us, okay? And they do this little test where they put your feet in those, uh, on that metal thing where you push off, I forget what it's called. And they, they time how long it takes your feet to leave the pad. Okay, so they know how many milliseconds. Okay, so let's say uh, an Olympian is somewhere between like 0.5 and 0.6 milliseconds to get off that thing. Okay, the grapplers were in 0. Uh, sorry, 0. 0.05 for our Olympic uh, sprinter. Sorry, so, and the grapplers were at 0. 0.5. Okay, so a huge difference. A huge difference between a guy who just do jiu-jitsu, who are that type of uh, athlete, and a guy who is a sprinter, like a full-on professional sprinter. We're talking about hundreds of milliseconds. I know it doesn't sound like a lot, but they're milliseconds. When it comes to reaction time, it's huge. Every every hundredth of a millisecond is like a mile. Okay, so if you want to see a punch coming to your face, and I'm punching at, you know, uh, 100 milliseconds and you're punching at 200 milliseconds, I'm going to beat you to the punch. So a guy like Formiga, that's why I found it strange because he's getting up there in age, it would be more advantageous for him to get into a grappling match than to keep it in striking for as long as it went. The longer it kept going in striking, I felt that the physical attributes will count more and more and more. So that's why you see like Damian Maya, this guy's not like a, a super efficient striker, very high speed, punching, kicking. But if he ties you up, he can slow you down enough that he can always get back into body-to-body -body clinching, taking you down, grappling you. And on the ground, they're much faster. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a good way to kind of approach Formiga at this point in his career. Um, he is a fighter who I think has always... He's always benefited by really nice timing. Um, like, I think that's probably one of his more underrated qualities as a, as a striker and as a wrestler is he's... He is very good at catching, you know, catching reactive takedowns and uh, and things of that sort. Like he's he's a well-timed fighter. I think the problem that Sturm and I sort of discussed before the fight was that he is not someone who tends to convert a ton of offense, and he's not a fighter who tends to win if he can't consistently out wrestle guys. Like I think. I think that there's uh, there was probably a chance that he could have taken Perez down. I think considering where he's at physically, you sort of have to wonder if he could actually convert that into a into like a three round decision win. I mean, who was the last person that Formiga was able to consistently take down? I guess it was Sergio, right? And that was a couple uh, of years ago. Figueredo, kind of. Oh, Figueredo, really. that's true. Um, I mean, he had some trouble there, even 
turning down into anything that actually scored. But um, I like I like a lot of what a lot of Formiga's ideas. I I think he's a smart like he's got a good sense of like punch and clutch where he will he, he does a good job entering the clinch reactively. Uh, he has there's more another example of him having nice timing is when he enters the clinch off his opponent striking or off of his own exits to kind of smother their punches and then and then getting out, angling off. Um, the issue for me was that, and this was actually a bit of a surprise because like as we talked about, Serum Formiga sometimes has a di- has difficulty scoring, but he actually did a nice job of it here. Yeah. Like he his left hook looked really sharp as you know. As Eamon pointed out, his his guard was nice. His Formiga's always had nice shot selection. He was actually going strike for strike with Perez for much of the fight. Um, I don't know if he kind of was trying to control the pace that way, or I don't know if he just felt like he didn't have it in him to consistently try to hit takedowns. But um, I felt like the leg kicks were maybe just a little bit... I felt like they were supplementary to the finish. I don't think it was... I don't think it was just Perez landing a couple leg kicks and and that was kind of the end of it. Like it Perez was actually doing a nice job as the fight went on of like weaving into his left hook. He's always always done well with that. Um and the fact that he could he could just afford to throw in, you know, lo- more extended exchanges with Formiga and just have the the physical strength and the physicality to just be there when they ended. Um like I said, I was I was actually bummed too. I really, I was actually loving this fight when it was going on. I really wanted to see three full rounds of it. Um, but I, I think the physicality edge is something. I maybe Formiga's. I don't know how much I can pick Formiga to win fights that he can't consistently out wrestle guys in. Um, so it was on that end. It was a little bit of a bummer. Eamon, did you have anything else for this one? Um, yeah, I would just add that, like you said, that he was able to get inside and stay clutch, like close and exchange with him on the inside, and then he'd bounce out. The other thing is, if I would, like with his skill set, instead of bouncing out, he should have tied him up and forced him to wrestle. Because guys who are more fast twitch, okay, guys who have amazing speed, they lose some of that speed when you tie up their arms and you exhaust them. You know, like I remember when, uh, let's say, when GSP fought BJ Penn, one of the, one of the first, yeah. one of the first parts of the game plan is when you grab that single leg don't take him down just keep him up against the cage and force him to defend the single for as long as you can and work away work your way around the single just get him to use his arms because bj penn has a world-class left hook okay he can drop almost anybody with that thing it doesn't matter how big you are you know it's fast it's hard to see and he's got great power so we want to eliminate one of his best weapons which would be like that fast left hook that he throws into counter so I just think like if Formiga like when like when he landed those counter punches when he took some on the arms and he stepped in and he got close enough, he could have converted them to a clinch or a single leg or a double leg and then forced the fight against the cage enough to drain the guy and then eventually score that takedown. There's a lot to be said about you know a guy like Ben Askren. He's not the greatest striker, but if he grabs a hold of you, it's hard to get back up and, and knock him out. It's not easy because you're drained, you know. But that's it. That's all I have to say for that one. Yeah, I think one thing that Formiga could have been thinking about was something that uh, our friend Ryan mentioned a lot about Perez. He has a really cool um, 
wrestling style top game. He does some cool stuff from front headlock. I think he got a Darce choke finish early in his UFC career. So I think that could have been something because if Formiga ended up on the bottom, that could have been a bit annoying for him in terms of like burning time, especially considering the thing that we mentioned earlier about how Formiga doesn't do like a ton of dazzling offensive things. Like, even in the first couple minutes of striking, it felt like Perez was landing a bit harder, apart from that one uh, really cool knee that Formiga timed with that weave. That was, uh, it was like right before the finish. It was terrific. But, yeah, I think, and this is something that we'll probably get back to with uh, Rafael Asensal, but the issue with being this kind of crafty fighter against a better athlete is that you just don't operate on the margin that you probably need moving forward. And, you know, with Alex Perez and Cody Garbrandt, it's even more... Um, it's even more striking because not only are they on the decline, but these are genuinely terrific athletes. So, you know, even if you're like the quote unquote better guy, the craftier guy who's like, you know, kind of uh, sharper in some respects, you don't really have the ability to navigate them as much as you might need to. Uh, speaking yes, of. It's not gonna be easy. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Eamon. No, I was just going to say, yeah, I agree. It's not going to be easy. I'm just saying there's, that's one route to victory. Well, I hope I hope Formiga can get back on track because I really like watching him fight. Um, and he's I know it probably sounds like he's kind of at the tail end of his career, but I he does a lot of really fun, exciting stuff. And he's uh, like he, he's he does some unique, unique things and has a kind of unique framework to his game that obviously makes Serum love him. Um, so I hope they give him someone that he can uh he can bounce back against. I, I don't know how much longer he's going to be in like the flyweight top 10, but we like watching him fight. And for Perez, uh, I mean, shit, they could do Perez Figueredo right now. And that'd be tons of fun instead of, instead of Figueredo Benavides too. But anyway, um, <laughs> moving on. I, I gotta say, I was impressed to a degree with Sean O'Malley's win over Eddie Wineland. I know it was like a win that he was expected to get, um, but he actually, O'Malley is actually starting to look like he's, he's figuring it out as a prospect. Um, we can talk about the nitty gritty in a second, but just general impressions of where we're at with Sean O'Malley. What do we think? Uh, I think so. As, as you mentioned, this was one that he was like supposed to win. Like Eddie Wineland, I, I love him in his prime. I didn't really expect him to get this one, unlike the uh, the two that we're about to talk about, because he was literally the first ever WEC Bantamweight champion. He was a title contender in the Barrow era. You're really not supposed to last that long. It would be super weird if he did. But it this pretty much went as well as it could for Sean O'Malley, and I think moving forward, there are guys who could compete with him at range, I think, but it's just... I think there's some room to grow for him in terms of career trajectory, and it's, he's going to be interesting moving forward at the very least. He's probably top 15 right now, but you know there, there are opponents that I think could cause him some trouble. Yeah, I would have to agree with you. Like, uh, you know, kind of expected him to win this one, which is, you know, he has to do what he's, what he's meant to do, and he did it with an exclamation mark, you know? So he didn't just win like we expected. He did a great job doing it. But I do think there are a lot of guys in the bantamweight division who are going to give him a lot of, uh, who can give him a lot of trouble, because uh, you know I saw like he's very good. He's a very good striker. His, his his skills are good. The way he throws punches and stuff is very good. I'm just I'm wondering like Eddie Wineland did land a good right hand early on because 
he is looking for that big shot, Sean. And some of the times, he's not as defensive as, let's say, a Conor McGregor. Because Conor, like, he do, they do similar stuff, Sean and Conor. But I feel like Conor respects his defense a little bit more. He's a little bit tighter. But that could be with experience, too. And, like, you know, he's definitely a, a very good prospect who I would like to see fighting. Uh, as, I'd like to see him grow as a fighter in the future. Yeah, I think that's a I think that's a good place to start. He's um I and that might, I think I agree with you and that's an experience thing. You know, O'Malley might it might take someone that O'Malley can't just walk over. It might take like a John Dodson or someone tough uh who he can't just sort of he can't just knock out and and keep moving um for him to kind of understand the value of like limiting exchanges and, you know, subtle slips and pulls that his style should uh should be integrated well in his style. Um, I like, I like O'Malley. I, I like that he has a, he seems to have a good, he obviously has a good sense of his own range. Um, I like that he has at least a more, you know, slightly deeper understanding of angles than, um, than, you know, a lot of MMA fighters, especially a lot of MMA fighters at the place in his career that he is like, he was doing a good job of letting Wineland take the outside angle and then he would he would kind of you know hit like an inside angle right hook or you know a body kick i the the cautionary point for for O'Malley outside of just his defense uh as you pointed out Eamon is that i like seeing O'Malley faint but it to me it looks like a lot of his feints aren't necessarily congruent with his offense like, he'll do a lot of kind of false starts and, like, turns with his head. But it looks like a lot of it is more just to sort of throw the opponents off. It isn't always to, like, bait out specific specific responses from an opponent to counter. Um, it's, like, always I like... I always like seeing fighters faint as opposed to not faint. But um, maybe this is maybe this is just me. Maybe this is something that'll settle more in time. But, like... It does seem like a lot of what he, a lot of how he faints and a lot of what he does at this point in his career is, is mostly just kind of misdirection for the sake of misdirection. Um, I think if he had a more active lead hand, like a more active jab, he would actually be able to disguise a lot of his feints and draw counters a bit better. Because that's, he does that well. Like when he actually gets a response from an opponent who's chasing him, you know, with punches as Wineland did, then he can, he can kick them on the way in, you know, he can sort of take, take angles on them and counterpunch. Um, he can set up his, set up his right hand, but it, it did look a little bit nascent. Did it look that way for anybody else? Or am I just, am I just spewing nonsense? Uh, yeah, I think at, at this stage, it's not the best comparison but like someone like Johnny Walker who could just like kind of run over guys by just like twitching a lot like oh he's big and strong and he's gonna do something I don't know what but better be really freaked out like at this stage of um, the guys he's fighting especially with like kind of old slower guys it's gonna be tough for them to handle that so I think moving forward that could be something he improves but yeah overall I agree it's there aren't a ton of guys in MMA and that's something that I think um you know, if you follow sports like kickboxing, which I know Danny does, it's kind of harder to see in MMA that guys are really intentional with their fainting because, you know, to pull out specific counters because, one, they're just not as good at it as a lot of kickboxers are, and, two, a lot of opponents aren't as good at countering specific ideas. So 
it's kind of harder to see it. And it's either going to be, you know, freak them out with it or just use a ton of fainting to hide the fact that you're going to do something, regardless of what that thing is. But, yeah, I think O'Malley, he could struggle. If I were to look at a fighter who could trouble him, it would probably be someone who could uh, pressure him safely, which is something that a lot of guys couldn't do because Wineland, he kind of just floats around. He doesn't, he like tries to move forward, but he's not like a concerted pressure fighter, if that makes sense. And someone who could, you know, kick with him on the outside. And some, like, I'm not sure how many of those guys there are at bantamweight, but, you know, maybe even something like length parity could be something that troubles him because a lot of the guys he's been facing don't have that. And a lot of what O'Malley does offensively is that uh, distance trap, Conor McGregor type thing. Uh, there are some guys there who could do some things. I'm just not really sure where his ceiling is right now, even just in his current form. Yeah, so if I want to just touch upon the feints, I feel like, yeah, you're right. They're a little bit um, obvious in a way, some of them. I'm not, I wouldn't say all of his feints are not great, but uh, it is easier to see than you would like. But it, also, I think that's more of an experience thing. And the more he fights, the more subtle he'll make them. You know, the more training hours he puts in, the more and more subtle. And I think those feints, if he keeps doing them, eventually he'll find that sweet spot where... It's guys question whether or not something is coming. Not oh yeah, that was a that was a fake, you know. Where then uh, when you talked about also uh, his reach, like if I was gonna say something about the fight, like for me, okay, if I'm fighting a guy with that much more of a reach, like I fought a guy who had a little bit more of a reach than me in, in uh, Ricardo Ramos, and I fought with my hands up because every inch counts for more than an inch, counts for a mile. Let's say that we say tristar, an inch is a mile. Hundreds of a millisecond is a mile. So you can't mess around when a guy has a longer reach than you. And if you watch Eddie Wineland, his hands were at his chest, you know, right at his nipple line. And to be fast enough at 35 against a 25-year-old whose main thing is striking, who's got a much longer reach than you, you know, it's it was my favorite strategy for him. Even though, like, early he did land a couple of good shots, Wineland. I'm, I'm not, he's obviously a good fighter, a great fighter. I just think maybe that shot wouldn't have been as devastating if it would have cut some of his forearm, you know? Like, he, I think fighting your hands down is a great style if you have the reach and the skill. Let's say Wonderboy always fights with his hands down majority of the fight. But, you know, I, there are moments where he puts his hands up, you know? And uh, I don't think fighting with your hands down is necessarily wrong all the time. But for this fight, it was a huge height advantage, a huge reach advantage, and someone who was a very comfortable striking uh, even though his feints weren't great, a lot of the time he could punch Wineland before Wineland can punch him or kick Wineland before Wineland had a chance of hitting him back. And uh, he took advantage of that. He did a great job. Yep, I I agree. I mean, we got to remember, O'Malley, is he's five years into his career. He's a young gun. He's like, he's has 12 pro fights, which is pretty good experience. But he's he's young in his career. There is plenty of time to to write this ship. Like I'm not, and I'm not I'm not knocking him. He did he had a he had a solid performance, and he did exactly what was expected of him. Um, it was more just like maybe it is just kind of an experience and a comfort thing. Um, when he fight, maybe it, it'll take an opponent who is a bit longer. Maybe you know maybe it is someone like Corey Sanhagen, um, who we'll talk about next. Uh, someone who's a bit longer and rangier, who doesn't have, doesn't give O'Malley that kind of insularity that he's used to. 
um, for him to realize that he needs to be a little more disciplined and diligent with his feints. But other than that, I was impressed. Uh, next on the docket was supposed to be the main event of the weekend. And boy, howdy, did it end quickly. Um, I was even a little bit bummed. I really wanted to see these guys fight a little bit longer. Uh, Aljamain Sterling ran over Corey Sanhagen and tapped him in under 90 seconds. Uh, Serum, you were big on the Sanhagen train going in. What stuck out to you? I mean, I think... Aljamain, and this is something that uh, our friend and colleague Ed Gallo mentioned, that uh, Sandhagen, a lot of what he does in terms of wrestling is kind of, he doesn't pay attention to, like, the first stage of, like, you know, fighting grips. He kind of just turns to his scrambling, and that's one thing that he did here. He gives up the back a decent amount, uh, and Aljamain Sterling, he fought a genuinely brilliant fight. Like, I've seen him fight smart fights before. He did a good job with Pedro Munoz, managing the distance well. Uh, he did a good job with Jimmy Rivera fighting a all-the-way-in or all-the-way-out type game, where Jimmy Rivera is kind of like a tank who wants to be in the mid-range. But this was this was next level from Aljamain Sterling, in that he just came out, he did what exactly what he needed to do, uh, pushed Corey Sanhagen back hard, uh, got him to the fence, where Sanhagen, like, I think Sanhagen, he's a bit more nascent than a lot of us want to think. Because he's, as you mentioned with Sean O'Malley, Sanhagen's only five years into his career, and his rise has been even crazier. Because he's five years into his career, he has wins over John Lineker, a win over Rafael Assuncao. That's it's genuinely ridiculous. But there's going to be some spots of, you know, he doesn't do some things as well as other fighters do things, because he's five years into his career. But I think, yeah, Sterling just, he fought the perfect fight to take Sanhagen out of his comfort zone. And Sanhagen... For, for all his strengths, his scrambling strength, for example, he fights like he can't be submitted. And a lot of people can't, but Aljamain Sterling has the best top game in the division. So, I mean, I think there's a place for Sanhagen to go here uh, once he develops a little bit more. But this was, um, it was Aljo's masterpiece. Uh, yeah, I, I agree that Aljamain played it perfect for this fight. Like, for the matchup, he did exactly what he was supposed to do in terms of game planning. His game planning was excellent. He put the guy right up against the cage, grabbed him. He knows the guy, you know, sometimes gives up his back. He went for it. The guy gave up his back. He jumped on. He took advantage. And if I were to get, like, more to the specifics, I think he played the back position extremely well. Like, right away, he put on that that choke. Even though the guy's chin was down, he's crushing his jaw. And Sanhigan did a very good job of getting it out enough that Aljamain had to let go. And then he did get two hands on one. But it, was, it wasn't perfect, his, his, his uh, attempt to escape. And I feel like um, maybe when he was almost out at one point, and then if you see Aljamain post his hand on the mat and, and then grabs him with his left arm and pulls him back into the choke, I feel like that at that moment when Sanhagen was turning to his right, he should have went quickly to face to use the mat to scrape Aljamain off. Instead of going face down, he should have... The, the angle he got to start was good, and then all of a sudden he should have shifted back to face him to kind of get him off his back and maybe enter the mount. But if Aljamain would have opened his legs to mount him or to do whatever, maybe there would be a brief chance to, you know, go to half guard and tie him up and then work your escape from there or fight from mount bottom because you don't want Aljamain on your back. Nope. <laughs> that is That is for damn sure. Yeah, I think you pretty much covered it. Um, I, I had kind of the same read as Sriram is that like, I don't, 
I don't like a lot of what Sanhagen does in the clinch. I know he's been a fighter who's been willing to, like you say, he's been willing to kind of roll and scramble his way out. He doesn't fight grips incredibly well when he's locked up. And I was impressed that Aljamain, Aljamain didn't have to, it wasn't even like a specific takedown into top control. Like it was, it was just the fact that all he had to do was just kind of get in on Sanhagen, Sanhagen's hips and then Sanhagen would sort of turn and try to build his base. And that was enough of a window that Aljamain was immediately able to just clamp onto his back. Um, yeah, my, like I said, there's not really a ton to say here, uh, other than, you know, it was Aljamain's early pressure was, was incredibly smart. The only thing I'd say is just that, like, this is kind of, this is kind of what I imagined was going to happen. Um, especially if Sanhagen was going to be as lax in grappling and clinch positions as he's been in the past. When you almost get tapped by Yuri Alcantara, you're probably, probably a safe bet that you're not going to be able to avoid some bad positions against uh, Aljamain Sterling. <laughs> um, but yeah, like I said, that, I, I was kind of hoping that we had more to say on that one because it's I was I was hoping we get three rounds to talk about, but unfortunately it was just uh, just a real quick quick finish and that was it. But there is actually more to discuss on the last fight, which is that we want to touch on, which is Cody Garbrandt versus Rafael Sunsau. Um, obviously, this was a a must win like this was a do or die for for Garbrandt and he he got it done um but i i'm not really sure what to make of this performance i don't know if this is like Sherm and i have both written about Garbrandt at different points and i'm not sure if this is you know quote unquote new and improved Cody Garbrandt as much as this was just, I, I don't know, he just didn't really bite on anything, and then he was able to draw out a, a somewhat uncharacteristic reaction from a patient fighter like a Sun Tzu. Sir, um, I know you were you were invested in this fight beforehand. What stuck out to you when you rewatched it? Yeah, I don't, I don't really buy into the new and improved Garbrandt. I think because a lot of Garbrandt's issue, and this is something that uh, you mentioned, Danny, in your first uh, Garbrandt article, was that his issue isn't necessarily defense in a vacuum. It's more that when he gets into exchanges, like three or four punches in, he squares up and kind of just, you know, goes mad. And somehow he didn't really force that kind of exchange. I think the thing to take away from the first four minutes and 55 seconds of each round was that Garbrandt, he still doesn't really know how to enforce his own range. And I think that's going to be a problem moving forward because, I mean, for example, like the obvious thing is like a fight with Sean O'Malley has been talked about, and that's obviously way too soon for Sean O'Malley. But like I kind of have concerns given how easily Garbrandt conceded a mid-range kicking match with Rafael Asuncao that someone who's just long and kind of runs around him could just make Garbrandt concede that kind of fight instead of actually trying to cover distance especially with the threat of, like, a single counter. Because the thing with Garbrandt is that historically, even back to guys like Marcus Brimage, he kind of needed guys to consent to the fight that he wanted. Like, if 
scrimmage kind of fainted in, got in and out quick. Garbrandt couldn't really get to the point where he wanted. And Garbrandt kicked with Marcus Brimage. He kicked with TJ Dillashaw. He waited for those guys to come in. And he waited for Rafael Asuncao to come in, too. Every time Garbrandt found success with his hands, it wasn't on the lead. It was on the counter. And the problem was that he couldn't draw out what Asuncao was going to do. He needed to wait for Asuncao to do it. So if someone just doesn't give him those opportunities, I have to question what Garbrandt does with, you know, like, if someone just punches and kicks long from out of range of his twos and threes, what's Garbrandt going to do? And it's it's a question worth asking. But insofar as Asuncao, I think Asuncao looked, um, he looked tentative. He didn't really want to lead with his hands either. And we saw at the end why that was, because, uh, you know, his, he was notably outsped on the inside. He wanted to kick with Garbrandt, but I think there was kind of a volume deficit there too. Because Asuncao, like, even since the Sanhagen fight, he's been having some trouble with his own volume. So... I think he ultimately just expected Garbrandt to be less smart than he was. And given Garbrandt's history, I can't necessarily say that's a bad decision. I think he expected Garbrandt to like shift forward into counters over and over again so he wouldn't have to be the one covering distance. But it, it didn't work, and he felt the urgency and ran into a counter. Uh, it was it was rough, but you know I'm not really sure what to make of Garbrandt's improvement after that. Yeah, no, I, uh, yeah, has he improved a lot or is he just more chilled out for the fight and they took away his bloodlust in a sense that like, listen, don't go out there and go crazy. We know you have bloodlust. We know you have it in you. We know you're tough. You don't got to prove it this time around. Let's chalk up a W and be patient. And it look, that's what it looked like. I, I think that uh, Asansa was outstriking him, not by a crazy amount, but I do think Asansa was more active early and that... Uh, I think maybe his coaches or somebody else had spoken to him and listen, just pick your shots, be calm, get really warmed up, and then later on in the fight, if you really feel like you need to let go of the bloodlust, maybe we would have seen it in round three. Maybe in round three, he would have went bonkers. Who knows? We don't know yet, right? Because he didn't get to round three. But the patience paid off big, okay? Garban has power, and that power can stay for a while. Now we know. Listen, he's going to knock you out in the third. He can knock you out whenever. Like you said, with Marcus Burmage, I do feel like Marcus was doing pretty good until he got hurt. Like, he was doing very well, okay? So that was a great point. And I do feel like someone, let's say, like, if we had a 135-pound Yair Rodriguez, someone was just going to keep kicking you and moving around and kicking you and moving around and kicking you. If he stays this calm, this laid back, it might destroy his forearms. Maybe he won't be as willing to throw the punches. And then we're going to have to see him pull out that wrestling that he talks about, you know, and see what his wrestling is going to be like or who knows what, you know. So uh, definitely an interesting fight. And I will mention that Asensal had both hands down, okay? He threw the kick, came back, both hands down below his chest, and bang, got smashed with the right hand. Like both hands. I can't believe how low some fighters are willing to put their hands fighting someone who has KO power, you know, like... Uh, my last fight, I overdid it. Like, my last fight against um, Vince Morales, okay? I saw his fights. I saw that okay, he's got power in his right hand. I'm like, listen, no matter what, don't get hit with the right. So that's what I really did. I think I only gave up, like, one good right hand I got hit with. But the rest of the time, I just took them on the arms. But I, I was too conservative, like, cause, because the fight before, I went too crazy. So this fight, I went too conservative. But there's a happy middle that fighters need to find. And I do feel like that's that's the that's the thing. You, you know, you, you want to respect the guy, but not fear him enough that you, you, you don't throw enough. You know, and I just feel like Asansao, in that one moment, in that one moment, he went too relaxed. I feel like he knew it was the end of the round. 
He's like, there's no way he's going to catch me now. Bang, you get caught. You see, you can't stop till that bell rings. You can't freaking stop. Cody's got power. He's done it before. And like, it's rare to have someone with KO power that late in the fight at bantamweight. We're not heavyweights, okay? Not everyone has that power. So if you see a bantamweight knocking guys out in round two, knocking guys out in round three, or anything later, they have power. That you have to respect. If a guy only knocks guys in the first minute, you know, it could be anxiety, it could be his nerves, and that power might fade quick. But some guys are gifted for it to last a while. And those guys have to respect bell to bell. Yeah. Um, I think I agree with all that. It was it was kind of an out of nowhere, out of nowhere, like, complete knockout. Like, I wasn't shocked to see Cody drop a Sun Sal. I was shocked to see him just highlight a Sun Sal. Um I think that Cody, that's the thing I'm kind of with you, sir. I'm as I, I'm not sure how much, I'm not sure really what to, to parse out of this performance. Like he will be, he will be a fighter who is difficult to exchange with. And it is notable that the only ones, the ones who've been successful in doing that are ones who had, you know, either granite heads like Pedro Munoz or they had a really specific read on, on when, what and when his counters were um, with TJ. The thing that made me laugh in the finishing sequence is that it was, it was such a strange, it was such a strange feint that drew a Sun Tzu's right hook out. Like, cause if you, if you look at it, like, it looked like a Sunsau was trying to do the kind of faint left load up the right hook that TJ did to knock out Garbrandt in their first fight. And what drew it out was Cody like bending over at the waist. <laughs> Is it wasn't like it wasn't a jab or like a you know a kick that kind of drew drew out the response. He was literally hands were at his weight, hands were at his hips. He bends at the waist. He goes back up, and a sunsau bites, and and Cody just kills him. I was the, the thing with that I want to remember, and uh, I I realize I'm kind of laughing about it. It was funny, but I bring it up because I don't know how I still don't really know how replicable replicable that moment is for Cody going forward. Like. We know that Cody hits hard, and we know that Cody can probably knock out anybody in this division. We know he's incredibly fast. We like we know these things about him. But in that moment, like that big highlight knockout, it was off of such a strange exchange that I don't know how many other opponents are going to gonna respond that way the way a Sunsau did. Does that make any sense? Like I don't know how many people aren't just gonna see him, you know, backed up to the fence. And maybe just kick him or, you know, try to feign at him to draw something out. Like, I don't, it seemed like a bit of a, I don't, I don't think Cody finishing Garbrandt is like a, like a low percentage outcome in and of itself. But that specific exchange was a strange one. And I feel like I don't want to, I don't want to cloud how that actually might impact Cody going forward. Like Cody and his coaches might look at that and say, oh, this is. This is what you need to be doing, but there was still a lot of mistakes in the discipline of Garbrandt that we've seen in the past. Like a lot of things reared their head here. It's just that it didn't wind up in him losing the fight. You get me? 
Yeah, I think, like, it's one thing, because I think Garbrandt historically, and this is something that it's also been seen against, like, Brimage, too, is that he trusts himself to win even at positional disadvantages, because he's just, he's such a huge power hitter, he's so fast. There's just, there's really no way that a guy can hang in extended exchanges without those two things you mentioned, either being super smart defensively or just being absolutely unkillable. So, I think it's... Asuncao, he's generally one of the more sophisticated strikers in the division, but I think a lot of what contributed to that was A, Asuncao being a bit more impatient than we're used to seeing, because at the end of a round that was kind of 50-50, round one was also kind of 50-50, and Asuncao, he's, I think he's generally more comfortable commanding the fight than he is fighting a 50-50 fight, which is true of anyone, but you know, if he's going to be patient, I think it's going to be in a fight where he's in control. So that's one thing. And B, Asuncao just kind of being a bit more athletically declined, technically declined than he used to be. Because prime Asuncao, I think he was he was fairly durable. Like even Marlon Moraes didn't knock him out uh, the way. And he landed a huge shot. Marlon Moraes is a massive hitter. So even like prime Asuncao was crazy durable. He was also fairly fast for the division. He, I don't really think that it was 100% Asuncao being declined. But I do think that there was some element of a Sun Tzu, like at least the rest of the fight even, of a Sun Tzu just not being particularly willing to pull the trigger on earlier exchanges. And when he felt the need to pull the trigger, he kind of just went on the first thing that he saw, which happened to be Cody doing a deep bow and like, you know, kind of kind of being dumb but intelligently. So it was it was a very, very weird finish. It was like it was a theatrical weird finish that I think it's gonna it's gonna convince people that Garbrandt is further along than he is in his development. Yeah, you know, I think the response should have been, the guy bends over at the waist, left high kick. Like, because he was already in softball. He was set up. Instead of waiting to see what he was going to do coming out of it, once you see a guy bend down that low, just throw the kick, man. So kick him right in the head. You know, if worst case, he's going to block it. But he wouldn't throw a right hand in the middle of a high kick. You know, it's a th- it was a tough call, but I find it weird. Like, cause when you watch the replay, he didn't see the punch coming, and he literally Cody did a boxing slip where he bent halfway over his hips and then came back up. Like that came from his waist, and to not see it, I don't know what what was up with that. You know, and I I don't know how he didn't see it, but I will say that if he was in his regular position, if he was in the orthodox position, he would he would have been able to maybe block it. But I think those calf kicks early on messed up Asan Salman. I think he was thinking in his head, he's like, my, my leg is hurting. How am I going to fight him softball? I haven't been drilling my entries from this side maybe as much. I don't know. But uh, definitely a weird exchange. And I do want to say that Cody's low kick, when he put his hand on the floor and swung around and did those low kicks, was very cool. And you might be seeing me do that in my next fight. <laughs> awesome well the second you do we'll shout you out <laughs> we'll be looking for it um yeah i thought it was genius because the guy can't kick you in the head if your hand's on the mat so yeah it's true yeah and how's he gonna punch you from there it's yeah he'd have to be reaching down he yeah. found the hack he found the hack in real life fighting that's it <laughs> found the hack. we found a tri-star hack and it oh, wasn't even yeah. tri-star it's a car it's a garbrand hack man this guy's a yeah the garbrand hack that's right gotta give him credit he's, he's boxing slash kung fu now um, like the last thing, the only really big thing I want to say wrapping up all these fights is that boy did Bantamweight and Flyweight show up because like all these were, were awesome. I mean, like the, you gotta give, you gotta give credit to all these guys for, 
for their wins. And they were all, they were all exciting. They were all interesting. Um, and like, they just, they just stole the show. I mean, what's, what's more to say about it? Like I'm Bantamweight is such an awesome division. Um, and I think that the top 10 is getting even more competitive. So just all good things. Like, I'm glad that I'm glad that those divisions were actually given spots on the main. I mean, I realized Perez Formiga wasn't, but I'm glad that a lot of the Bantamweight fights were put on the main card and they, they killed it. Um, but yeah, I I think I'm good on my end. This was a. The, are you any less bummed out now, Sram? Are you still a little? I mean, uh, Formiga and Asunsa are basically the same person, so I can only be bummed out once collectively for both of them. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was it was rough, but it is what it is. Uh, there's some turnover. I mean, even a fight like uh, Stamen Kelleher was super fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bantamweight's just not. I mean, Bantamweight and Flyweight just aren't good for the for the old fighters, and there's really nothing more you can expect at that point. But they are good uh, for entertainment value and for skill, which is about as much as you can hope for. Um, okay. So I think I'm I think I'm good on this end. Eamon, do you have any last thing you want to add before we wrap this up? No, I just want to say thanks to you guys. I had a great time. And uh, it was fun being on the show. Absolutely. We'd love to have you thanks on again. Any, you're welcome anytime. Okay, great. We said the same thing to, said the same thing to Zach when he, yeah. When he recorded. Um, yeah, we Listen, love... Guys, Zach hurt Arnold Allen's feelings by not mentioning him in the tweet. So you guys got to get him on. Arnold Allen. <laughs> <laughs> you know, to fight in the UFC. I'm telling you, he knows his stuff, okay? He's very good. I'm uh, doing a shout-out for him because Zach, uh, yeah, left him out of it. We will... Arnold, if you're listening, you're welcome. You're welcome Absolutely, to come yeah. on. Absolutely, yeah. We'd love to have, love them, <laughs> have them both on again. Um, yeah, that'd be awesome to have Arnold Allen on. He's he's on such a good streak right now. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, uh, in case anyone is still listening, thank you all for joining us. Uh, thank you, Eamon Zahabi, for joining us this week. Pleasure. Thank uh, you, We should be back soon enough i don't really know what's there's anything to talk about next week but we might find something um burgos coming up that could be fun yeah we can talk about burgos we can always talk about burgos um and for those of you who don't know please check out our work at the fightsite.com stream do you have anything coming out this week uh no probably not this week um probably something near the end of the month uh the Ismagulov piece I mentioned before, something on Michael Johnson, which is going to be fun and sad in equal measure. Um, okay. Nice. So some stuff just coming down the, the pipeline. Um, for me, I just wrote a piece on Ilias Anahachi, the uh, one flyweight kickboxing champion on the fight site. Uh, and it just ran yesterday. So if you haven't read that, go check that out. Uh, please join our, our Patreon. It supports us. Helps us a lot. And thank you to everybody listening, and stay safe. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Ciao.